When it comes to access for justice in Ontario, it appears the province's Bill 161, the Smarter and Stronger Justice Act, will do neither. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. While the province continues to grapple with the pandemic, predominantly in long-term care homes, Bill 161 will put the legal ball in the court for the defendants being sued. Now, there are several class action lawsuits currently underway against operators of some of these facilities for negligence. But those families will be put through even more under Bill 161. The pandemic has hit low-income Canadians hard. These are the people who use Legal Aid Ontario to access justice. The new language in the Act puts cost ahead of justice when it comes to Ontario's most vulnerable. On this edition of the Unpublished Cafe, we'll find out more about the impact of the Smarter and Stronger Justice Act on legal aid, as well as what it means for class action lawsuits. The Attorney General, Doug Downey, was invited on this show, but his office, quote, respectfully declined. To try and accommodate him, I asked for alternate times, but we never did get a reply despite several efforts. Marissa Lennox is with the Canadian Association of Retired Persons, and she joins us now. And Marissa, what in your perspective, from CARP's perspective, is lacking in was lacking in the previous legislation? Well, it's not so much... I actually think the previous legislation uh, worked quite well. It's it's what Bill 161 uh, proposes that will make very significant reforms to Ontario's class action laws. You also mentioned uh, legal aid, and, and and these are you know some of the proposed changes that are included in this bill are are deeply concerning to us. Now, the change to class proceedings it, now it's mandatory for superiority and predominance tests. Uh, first mm-hmm. off, if we can explain what that means for, for our listeners and, and what's different now. Sure. So uh, the predominance requirement effectively says that the issues in common must predominate over individual issues. In other words, any case that doesn't have a huge amount in common cannot be certified. So, for example, you can consider a long-term care home. What this could mean is that plaintiffs who died of COVID-19, but due to different causes, so lack of isolation, contamination, insufficient PPE, shortage of staffing, may not be able to be certified because of the fact that they all died of the same thing. COVID-19 is not enough of a predominating factor. Similarly with neglect, you know, there are many different forms of neglect that occur in long-term care, uh, force-fed to the point of choking, not receiving baths for weeks on end, insufficient food or water. Um, And because of how individualized these stories are, because of the fact that people suffer different damages, they could be denied the ability to form a class. Um, you know, and then, and then, of course, the second change is the superiority test, which effectively puts the responsibility on the plaintiff to prove that there is no other reasonably available means of seeking justice and relief, where the burden today rests with the defendant. So it could effectively let corporations say, you know, this plaintiff should take their complaint to a tribunal instead. So it shifts the responsibility and it makes it harder for vulnerable people to certify a class and to seek justice. Why would there be a change like this to, to, to provide less access to justice? 
I can't understand why our our government, because this would be this would be a shift from how other provinces it would be it would it, it would represent a deviation from the approach in other provinces, but it does exist currently in the United States. Um, and so, you know, class actions, you know, they're so important, right? It's they're important so that John Doe, the lawyer, can deal with litigation on behalf of thousands of people at once. If an individual class member has to go hire a lawyer and experts, it's a fortune. Actually, frankly, it's cost prohibitive for many people. And when you're up against a big corporation like a major operator of long-term care, it's effectively a David and Goliath situation. So what class actions do is they allow for all of these cases to come together so that individuals can have an equality of arms. And where we have concerns is that seniors make up the lion's share of long-term care residents. They tend to take more medications. They use more medical devices. And so making it more difficult to form a class action would have a very direct impact on their ability uh, to seek justice. And we do know that this, these two uh, tests, the predominance test and the superiority test, exist today in the United States. Medical device class actions in the U.S. are very rare. Let's take a, you know, let's say a medical device was to fail in an individual, in a person's body. Um, You know, it could cause a variety of different injuries. It could cause pain. It could cause death. And a defendant could argue, yes, well, but what were the various comorbidities that existed um, that caused that individual's pain? So it's no longer about whether or not that that device is defective or not. So I think that there are some people that would be interested in in making class actions much more difficult to form, to certify um, insurance companies that mm-hmm. that don't want to pay out huge sums and and other corporations that are often um, hit with with major class actions. You know, if I recall, it was the Canadian Banking Association and the insurance uh, industry were the only sort of two supporters uh, of this bill, were they not? Uh, to, to my knowledge, they were, they were among the individuals that were, that were supportive of this. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I read your, your look, your, I think you're, yeah, I mean, I, you're right. I mean, it's, it's banks, it's insurance companies and, and they have a vested interest in arguing against the certification of class actions. Marissa Lennox is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. She's with the Canadian Association of Retired Persons as we discuss Bill 161, the Smarter and Stronger Justice Act. It hasn't been updated in 25 years. It was, it did need to be done, right? Yep, and and and, and many of the amendments that have been proposed in this bill are, are you know, fairly innocuous and, and are probably... Um, are, are good changes. Uh, it's it's these two proposed amendments that we have concerns with. In, in terms of 161, Marissa, I think the government was sort of aiming at getting rid of frivolous lawsuits. We've seen that with previous legislation they have as well. Mm-hmm. Do you see that see that as doing that, or do you think it's just going to create bigger problems? No, I think it will create bigger problems. Um, you know, there are examples of important class actions that have been stopped in the United States because of these provisions. 
Um, one I read about recently um, <clears throat> was a class action which alleged that uh, Walmart uh, de- was denying its female employees promotions and equal pay, and it was stopped from forming because of the predominance amendment. Um, or because of both of these amendments, superiority and and, and, and predominance. Um, and so that is, of course, the concern. Again, and I mentioned previously, you know, medical device class actions in the United mm-hmm. States are very rare today, um, where, uh, you know, seniors would make up a disproportionate amount or, you know, percentage of the people that would be party to that class action. And so... I don't know why we would want to make class actions more difficult to form and allow them to go to court and to be litigated um, because it really is creating an equal playing field for people that don't have the cost or the ability to hire a lawyer individually and to sue a company. You know, you obviously work with uh, retired persons and uh, long-term care, retirement homes. That uh, is, a, is a big issue right now, obviously, in, in, the, in the COVID thing. Uh, but what I, I'm kind of wondering, are you hearing from families uh, of members of CARP or who might be CARP that are saying we're very concerned right now? Well, not only have we heard from numerous CARP members through our call center and through our advocacy inbox, but when we launched a petition calling on the government to withdraw these two amendments, we had over 7,000 signatures in under a week. And so we've relayed that petition to the Attorney General. Um, <clears throat> no response as of yet. I understand uh, the status of this bill is that it's gone to third reading and, and mm. was debated. Um, and so it looks like it'll it'll likely receive you know, royal assent. But um, we've certainly relayed the concerns to, to the Justice Committee um, in our presentation to them and also to to Attorney General Doug Downey. And it is something that we have heard from many of our CARP members that have expressed concerns. Do you see this uh, Law 161, uh, when passed, being challenged in court or possibly appealed? It's possible. I'm not a lawyer, so it's mm-hmm. it's hard to say, but I imagine it would be. All right. Marissa, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Marissa Lennox is with the Canadian Association of Retired Persons. As mentioned, the Smarter and Stronger Justice Act also brings changes to the way legal services are provided by Legal Aid Ontario, which supports those in poverty with access to justice. Legal Aid Ontario lawyers, local Vice President Dana Fisher joins us now. Dana, when you presented to the Standing Committee on 161, you said Ontario has an access to justice crisis. How so? Well, there's a number of uh, concerning features in the justice system currently. Delays in uh, reaching trial times, the bail crisis, I think, that's been reported on over and over again um, in in the context of um, the laws effectively, I think we could say, not being applied um, fairly and consistently with what's under the Act of the Criminal Justice Act. Criminal Code, sorry. It's a... changing uh, streams right now from the uh, uh, health and safety crisis that's going on and coming back to the bill 161 is uh, catching me a little off guard. So apologies for that. But uh, yeah, there's a, there's a health and there's a crisis going on in the justice system in the sense that for the criminal side, bails are not being um, 
managed appropriately. We all know that um, there's an over-incarceration problem across the board, but particularly in uh, respect of the Indigenous populations, um, and even more so in the North for that. There's trial delay issues, and those get reported regularly when there's, um, you know, trials that aren't reached, and the, the courts sometimes actually will, will throw out, essentially, the case because of, of the delay that, that accounted. I mean, the fact that we're looking at, you know, a year plus to get to a trial, um, it, you know, and that's not considered unusual, um, I think would be deeply concerning to many. I know there's victim rights groups that also have uh, concerns in, in, in that context as well, but there's a, there's a whole stream of issues, and, and those are being amplified right now with the with the current uh, COVID crisis that's underway as well. When you talk about uh, bail not being managed, and, and obviously this is an access to justice uh, issue, is it just we're, we're being overwhelmed with crime, or uh, is it just the system can't handle what it's dealing with? It's actually more than that. I mean, there's been a number of reports that have looked at the actual issues of the bail system. One of the things that's really interesting is that in Ontario, there's an over-reliance on on what are called sureties. And those are people that basically, you know, pledge to, you know, watch over somebody who's being released from custody that is charged with something but not yet found guilty. Um, In Ontario, very frequently, they require uh, such a person to come forward. So a family member or a friend will come forward and say, you know, I'll let Joe you know, live in my house and I'll keep an eye on him for the entire time that he is out on custody before he even has his trial, before he's found guilty. In other jurisdictions, those um, having somebody come forward and pledge and, and supervise in that capacity is reserved for, you know, serious um, matters, for violent matters, uh, for somebody with a prior criminal record, um, things like that. In Ontario, what you'll find is even on very minor matters where even if you were found guilty, you wouldn't be incarcerated and you wouldn't have that level of supervision. They're requiring it um, for, for bail purposes. So you end up in this very strange situation where you are under more supervision when you are presumed innocent and haven't been found guilty of anything. And then even if you're found guilty, you wouldn't be under that level of supervision because the crime is so minor. So there's actually a problem with how the um, how the how the courts and um, prosecutors and are, are interpreting the criminal code and how they're applying it in the context of bail. And so for British Columbia, for example, it would be unheard of to use sureties in that context. So what we end up with is a, a, a large number of individuals who can't meet the requirements that the courts or the prosecutors are requiring. The, the prosecutors will make a recommendation and then the courts will actually ultimately make the order. But um, they can't meet what's what's become a, a norm in our system. Um, they don't have, you know, a close family member. They're homeless. They're, you know, whatever other reason, you know, they, they just can't meet that. Um, and then as a result, they all they may stay in custody, um, which is an even greater problem because now you've got somebody sitting in custody that if they pled guilty today, they would actually get out of custody. Um, but they're sitting there instead. So um, issues like that, it, it's not a an increased crime problem. It's not a, um, I can't remember what the other um, thought that you had that you that you suggested. It, it's actually just that we've kind of keep ramping up what we, you know, what levels of protection. And I think it's a, everybody kind of protecting themselves to a degree, right? You don't, you know, you don't want to be the person that released somebody where something goes wrong. Right. Yeah. Um, so what we've just, we just kept adding on more and more protections, which sounds good, Um but it doesn't. It doesn't work out that way. Well, it's and, a, you know, does it not yeah, violate their rights if uh, if they can't get a bail in a in a timely timely manner? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what we end up with is everybody's having a contested bail hearing because nobody wants to, you know, 
apply the law in the way that it should be being applied. So what you end up with is it can sometimes reach be days before somebody even reaches a bail hearing in some jurisdictions. Uh, there are some jurisdictions that um, what I would argue would be contrary to the, to the law um, don't allow you to have a bail hearing on the first day that you appear before the courts. And again, this is all being exacerbated right now with the COVID situation yeah. Um, yeah. where bail is happening, you know, but this was a, a, an ongoing problem even before that in person. You'd show up in the court and they'd say, well, are you ready to proceed? And, you know, you're, you're faced with the option of either, you know, running a bail without, you know, without a surety and risking that the courts are going to think that that's necessary because, again, that's the norm that's being applied. You know, mm-hmm. the law doesn't, if you read the law on its face, I don't think people would think, oh, that's what's required. But because it's supposed to be a, a, a ladder principle, essentially, like you only go up to a surety if all other forms of release, you know, are not sufficient. You know, is there any reason to believe this person isn't going to come to court if they were released right now? Well, well, no, they've never not come to court before. This is, a, you know, maybe a theft charge, maybe, a, you know, who knows right. what else. Um, but instead, they sit in, sit in custody. So absolutely. You also mentioned uh, in your presentation, uh, Bill 161 brings a lack of independence to legal aid Ontario. How so? So one of the concerns with the with the bill is that there's an oversight level in the um, in the in the board. So currently, under the uh, Legal Aid Services Act from 1998, there is a um, Sorry, I'm just kind of going back to the sections here. There's a requirement that the board is composed of um, a greater number of parties that are recommended by the Law Society of Ontario. So the Law Society of Ontario is the regulatory body for mm. um, for lawyers in Ontario. So the way the uh, act is currently written, they require uh, they they make recommendations, and then the um, the ministry you know selects who should sit on the board. The current act, as it's written, uh, recommends or allows for a range of recommended numbers of uh, recommendees, but it's a lower number. So as a result, there's a greater number that can be put forward by the, um, um, by the ministry itself. So the problem with this is then you end up with a, with a board governing Legal Aid Ontario that's composed of predominantly Ministry of the Attorney General um, recommended, or not even recommended, appointed, um, members of the board. So given that majority of legal aid's work is in direct conflict with the Ministry of the Attorney General, so, you know, the government funds legal aid, but it's supposed to be an independent. But if the majority of the board is being appointed by um, by the Attorney General, then I think we're getting into a, a significant risk of, of conflict of interest, either just the appearance of it or, or in fact, an actual, contact, con- an actual conflict of interest. Keeping in mind, like legal aid must implement policies. They have to put forward procedures and take actions in court, but also just in establishing how they're going to run their organization, um, challenging Meg and other government bodies. Dana Fisher joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. She is the Legal Aid Ontario Lawyers Local Vice President as we discuss Bill 161, the Smarter and Stronger Justice Act. And that act also removes advisory committees from the Legal Aid Ontario. What were they previously doing, and, and how does this impact the access to justice? So the advisory committees are one of the, the few ways that um, people outside of Legal Aid Ontario are able to give input to the Board of, uh, the, to the board of Legal Aid Ontario. So it allows, um, under Section 7 of the current LASA, uh, requires Legal Aid to establish advisory committees in the areas of law, of criminal family and clinic, 
but it also allows them to create additional advisory committees. And, and under this provision, legal aid has actually come forward and um, established a number of advisory committees, um, Aboriginal issues. Um, they've come up with uh, French language service advisory boards, um, immigration and refugee law, mental health, and racialized communities. And one of the really big concerns is that this, this current act, as it's uh, Bill 161, the proposal for the new Legal Aid Services Act, removes any reference to these advisory committees. And, and the concern is that these advisory committees are really the only place where um, you know, members of, of the public, so thinking um, it allows for um, uh, individuals like experts can, are so often said that these local practitioners can sit on these committees. Um, there really are a, a, a means by which you can actually have the views of the public and that you can have the views of uh, experts into the system because again that, that just doesn't that's not going to exist within the system so especially in a in a time like today where you know there's so much um, going on in terms of you know racialized committees and the indigenous issues it's really crucial now more than ever I think to have these advisory committees in place um, to provide for these um, you know this, this means of having public information uh, shared with the board in a, in a manner that actually gives recommendations. Uh, it's, it's quite concerning that that's going to be potentially could disappear. Right. Now, uh, that the act doesn't require it more than anything. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I understand there was a 30% cut in, in the Legal Aid Ontario budget. Are we expecting there will be more cuts down the line? I, I don't think we know. Um, I, I think the, one of the concerning uh, aspects of this particular, um, the changes to the legislation is that in conjunction with the cuts, the current legislation or the proposed legislation rather uh, no longer mandates for legal aid to provide certain services um, as it had previously. So one of the concerns is that if there, you know, this kind of opens the door for the government to cut funding further, for example, and, and you know, for legal aid, you know, previously we'd be able to say, well, legal aid would be able to say, you know, you've cut our funding, we can't provide the services that we are legally mandated to provide. Well, the difference now is that this this act no longer will require them to provide any services. So, you know, kind of puts that all on legal aid and I, and I think sets up a really dangerous, um, you know, kind of domino effect that could come from further cuts or could lead the way to further cuts, I think, would be and, a, a way that I would characterize it. And if that happens, then are you expecting more Ontarians, in particular the vulnerable ones, uh, low income, homeless, poverty, uh, are going to have even less access to legal services and justice. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we see that already, and it's already an abysmally um, poor system in, in the sense that, you know, in order to qualify, you know, it's only certain types of cases that will qualify. I think a lot of people, you know, assume our system is kind of like the states where if you are charged, you are, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, guaranteed a lawyer. That, that's not the case here. You actually, you have to qualify not only financially, and the financial thresholds are absurdly low. It's, you know, mm-hmm. a single person who makes more than $17,000, you know, won't qualify for a legal aid certificate. Um but um, but you also have to legally qualify. So for, you know, they only provide certificates for certain types of matters. For a criminal matter, it would only be for if you are looking at jail time. So if you're charged with a criminal offense, make less than $17,000 um, a year and, you know, are facing a, um, a criminal charge that, you know, you, you aren't looking at jail time, 
even though it could result in you not being able to be employed in the future, or you could result in, in custody issues with your children or who knows what mm. else, um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get a certificate. You'd be on your own. Wow. You might be able to go to legal aid and get some advice, but that would be the extent of it. You're, you'd be expected to actually represent yourself in a trial against an experienced crown attorney. Dana, I, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Dana Fisher is the local vice president of Legal Aid Ontario. Sakpreet Sanga is on the advisory board with Legal Aid Ontario. She's the newcomer program manager at Law and Action within schools, and she joins us now. And, and first off, Sakpreet, can you tell us about Law and Action within schools? Sure. Uh, law and Action within schools, or laws, as we typically go by, is um, an access to legal education program housed at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, as well as at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University. And so we work with the TDSB and teach uh, various legal education workshops and run mentorship programs and other programming through our partner high schools to uh, enhance the diversity of the students that proceed to legal education and legal work um, and also to enhance student outcomes and promote graduation amongst our students who are often facing multiple barriers to success in high school. But I should clarify that my my uh, role in regards to Bill 161 is actually through a coalition of legal workers called Legal Aid for All. Legal Aid for yes, I, I recall that as well. Now, you work with many new Canadians through through laws. What are these people requiring in terms of legal support? Uh, a variety of issues, I would say, are faced by newcomers, uh, both youth and adults, when they come to Canada. A lot of the services that they access through legal aid, um, of course, can relate to immigration, uh, but also they can face issues in relation to education, employment, things can arise in family law, criminal law, sort of the bulk of the areas that are served to clients uh, through Legal Aid Ontario can be faced by newcomers just as they are faced by people who have been in Canada for a longer period of time. Uh, But because newcomers often face barriers to employment and uh, lower income issues, they can need to access legal aid services more than perhaps other folks living in Canada need that access to more affordable or free, rather, uh, legal services, especially in some of the areas that I just named. Mm-hmm. So so does Bill 160, 161 provide more for them, or is it taking more away? I would say that it definitely risks taking more away because of various provisions in the bill that could limit the scope of legal clinics in particular and the services that they can provide and uh, especially the fact that legal clinics due to Bill 161, presuming it is passed, which I expect that it will be, uh, will require clinics to renegotiate their funding agreements with Legal Aid Ontario. And it remains to be seen what those renegotiations will entail and what kind of services clinics will then be able to provide. So there is a there is a risk that uh, newcomers as well as others will not be able to access the same scope of services that they were able to before. And another issue, of course, in that, which I should I should state though that the the committee has made some amendments to the bill, which we were happy to see. So in the third reading that it's in now, there have been some changes. Um, which followed some of our recommendations and the recommendations of many other partners and clinics. But uh, there are still some concerns, uh, including the fact that, you know, the, the purpose of the old Legal Aid Services Act explicitly mentioned access to justice, 
and low-income individuals and disadvantaged communities early on in the legislation in the in the purpose section, section number one, and those phrases have been removed from the new bill and the, the purpose refers to needing to provide value for money and it's very economically focused rather than focused on access to justice, which we feel needs to be the principal purpose of this act and of legal aid service provision. You mentioned that uh, there were some changes to the um, to the bill in uh, third reading that you were in support of. Uh, which were they? Well, they did add those terms, but they added them far later in the legislation in the principles section. Mm-hmm. So that section is not as persuasive in terms of the interpretation of what the purpose of this act is, should any issues arise in the future and sort of as the the foundational philosophy. So it's good that that language of access to justice and low-income individuals and a focus on disadvantaged communities has now been added after the deputations before the committee. But as I said, it's not in the purpose section right off the top. It's far further down the legislation in the principles section, which is not as foundational, but we're happy that the language has been added. So that's good. And in terms of the renegotiating of the agreements between legal aid and clinics, uh, in the old version of Bill 161, there were only six months in which clinics would have to all renegotiate any agreements with legal aid. And they have changed that to allow for those renegotiations to take place uh, by April 1st, 2021, which does allow for more time for the renegotiations, which is a positive change. Uh, but again, it is still not an extensive time period. And uh, they also changed the definition of poverty law, which was a major concern of ours in the old Legal Aid Services Act. The definition actually referred to clinic law and was was more expansive based on an extensive review that was consulted before that legislation was drafted, the Mechanics Review. And the first version of Bill 161 uh, introduced a definition of poverty law that was very limited in terms of what services clinics could provide. But thankfully, the edits of the amendments has included a, a broader definition of poverty law that allows for more of the work that clinics have traditionally been doing, which is a positive change as well. Um, But we still have many concerns about Bill 161, including the fact that uh, it says that Legal Aid Ontario may provide services and lists uh, several areas of service that Legal Aid does, in fact, currently provide legal services in. But it does not say that Legal Aid Ontario shall provide those services, which is the language in the old version of the bill. So that creates some room for service to be diminished, which is concerning. Sakrit Sangha is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe as we talk about Bill 161. She's with Legal Aid for All as well as the Newcomer Program Manager at Law and Action within schools. Now, you you also sat on one of the Legal Aid Ontario advisory boards. Uh, We were talking with Dana Fisher earlier, and she's telling us that they want to get rid of the advisory boards. From your perspective, as a person who sat on it, uh, does what does it provide for these people, and uh, is it going to leave people on the outside looking in uh, if they're eliminated? Yes, yeah, so I continue to sit on the Criminal Law Advisory Committee for Legal Aid Ontario, and I share those concerns that Ms. Fisher raised. Uh, the advisory committees that Legal Aid has currently in place exist in a number of different areas of their practice. So there's a clinic committee, there's a racialized communities committee, there's a various committees, including the criminal one on which I sit. And 
uh, it is disconcerting to see that there is not language around the existence of those committees in the new version of the Act because one of the functions of our advisory committee is to advise legal aid on issues that we see with service provision and uh, things that clients need that they're not currently getting. And legal aid is able to use the input of the advisory committee members to, to really get a better window into the reality on the ground of what services are looking like and what clients are saying they are having issues with. And so if those advisory committees are lost, again, the, the system becomes more closed to the actual recipients of legal aid services because it's another door that has been shut for clients and community members to provide uh, input on, on issues with the system. So it's a very necessary way to keep legal aid grounded in the communities that it serves and to have open communication with representatives of those communities. So we would very much like to see those advisory committees continue rather than disappear as they might under the new legislation. Do you feel this bill targets racialized communities? I don't know that I would say it explicitly targets racialized communities, but I will say that it will negatively impact racialized communities because of these potential diminishments to legal aid services. Uh, There are many racialized communities who need to access legal aid because of systemic racism and various other barriers to access and the fact that, you know, we know that Indigenous uh, people as well as Black people as well as other racialized communities are over-incarcerated and over-policed and fall into poverty more than other communities. All of these factors mean that they access legal aid more than other communities. And so any restrictions to legal aid, including the $133 million that were cut from legal aid last year by this provincial government, will disproportionately impact racialized communities. So yes, I would say that the bill will negatively impact racialized communities. Do you see 161 as streamlining justice in, in Ontario or no? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I do, at least in terms of schedules 15 and 16, which are the schedules about the Legal Aid Services Act. The bill is actually very large and affects 19 different acts. So I can't speak to whether or not it's streamlining justice in those other areas since it is so mm-hmm. substantial in, in its focus. But I would say that it is not streamlining or modernizing, as the government likes to say, the Legal Aid Services Act in any positive way. Sukhpreet, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Sukhpreet Sunga is on the advisory board with Legal Aid Ontario. She's the newcomer program manager at Law and Action within schools, as well as with Legal Aid for All. And that leads to our unpublished.vote question. Do you feel Bill 161, the Smarter and Stronger Justice Act, We'll leave more Ontarians in search of justice. Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. I want to thank our guest today, Marissa Lennox, with the Canadian Association of Retired Persons. Legal Aid Ontario Lawyers Local Vice President Dana Fisher and Sukhpreet Sangha. She's with the Newcomer Program Manager at Law and Action Within Schools, as well with Legal Aid for All. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.